0: Psalm 49. If you open your Bibles to Psalm 49. Well, in a moment here. We'll be reading together the entire psalm and talking through it. I didn't intend this when I chose Psalm 49. I sometimes it turns out I amaze myself, but uh, when I was putting together the Ecclesiastes and Psalms portions and how we would work through them. Ecclesiastes, I broke up by major thoughts and major, major portions of Ecclesiastes. But Psalms, I didn't sit back and say, what's a good Psalm to go with this section the next week of Ecclesiastes? It was uh, a much less spiritual process than that. I went back in the archives of all the recordings of Northbrook and looked up any time, at least back to Eric, I didn't have it for Dave Miller, but looked up any time Eric spoke from the psalms, and so any time that he preached from a psalm, I just crossed that off. That one was done. And then I went back through my own stuff, and any time I had preached from a psalm here, that got crossed off. And so that left me with a pool of a lot of them left. Um, and so then it was okay. We've got these books of Psalms: Book One, Book Two, Book Three, Book Four. And so I thought um, I'll try and pick some from each book. And um, and then I found myself picking them and going: These are all Psalms of lament. I'm just every one of them is a Psalm of lament. So then I had to go back and say, there's there's other kinds of Psalms in here. So I started trying to choose from the other kind of Psalms and came up with my list. And then also, I tried to pick some psalms that went with some songs that have been written, so I sent those to Scott, and because he had suggested possibly linking them to some songs. So then I had my list, and then it was just, okay, this Ecclesiastes section, this psalm, this Ecclesiastes, this psalm. So that's how it happened. Um, it was not deep, dark prayer about uh, which ones I should do, which maybe would have been a better approach, but... Uh, it just so happens that Psalm 49 echoes the Ecclesiastes passage from last week. Uh, both of them talk about money, and uh, so we're going to get money part two today, but it's going to come from a little different, uh, Psalm, Psalm 49, the sons of Korah approach, approach it uh, from a little different standpoint than Solomon did in Ecclesiastes, but actually if you If you were tuned in to Ecclesiastes last week, you will recognize some similar themes again this week in Psalm 49. But uh, it's a good psalm. Last week with Ecclesiastes, Solomon talked about our view of our possessions and our money and our tendency to believe that money and possessions can satisfy us and that money and possessions can bring us ultimate happiness. Um, If you've ever sat back and thought, if I had that amount of money, then I could do this and I would be happy. If you've ever had a thought pattern like that, you have gotten sucked into the idea that money can satisfy. And Psalm 49 is going to present a different aspect of uh, our wealth, And in this case, in Psalm 49, it's not about satisfaction, it's about trust. If you've ever sat back and said, If I won the lottery, then I would be set for life. Then you need to hear Psalm 49. Because that's what it's talking about. Where your security is. If you have been panicking in the last few months over your IRA, like, one of mine lost $14,000. One of my investments lost $14,000 over the summer. And I was just like, that's, that's, that's a lot of money uh, in that one thing there. And it did that in about a month. And all of a sudden, I started thinking, so I don't have much retirement money to begin with, and this isn't looking real good when this starts happening, and can this ever be earned back, so to speak? When we start worrying about that, we need to hear Psalm 49 because that's a revelation that our trust is founded in something or, or the, in this case, the wrong thing. And so uh, there's a danger in trusting in our wealth and boasting in our riches, and Psalm 49 brings that to uh, our consciousness. So let's read this together. I'll read it aloud, and as usual, I invite you to follow along in your Bible. To the Choir Master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high and rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, I will solve my riddle to the music of, of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble? When the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die and the fool and the stupid alike must perish. See, that word stupid is in the Bible, so it's legitimate to use. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, Yet after them, people approve of their boasts, Selah. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol, with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Selah. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Benjamin Franklin is famously quoted for saying, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. And these two things go together so inextricably that for most of us, someone will be filing tax returns for us after we're gone. My dad passed away now five years ago, and I remember my brother and I were both trustees for his trust, um, and my brother David, since he was there where everything had been filed and done and where my dad lived. Um, he took care of all of the paperwork and I remember him and, uh, and the hassles that he had trying to get different documents so that he could file my dad's tax returns after he was gone. Uh, dying does not exempt you from taxes and in some states dying actually allows you to keep voting as, as it goes on, as the old joke says. But death and taxes are just tied together. And here today in our text, the writer calls all of humanity. He says, all peoples hear this, give ear all inhabitants. He calls not just the Jewish people to listen, but the Gentiles as well. He calls all of humanity to hear what he has to say about death and money. As you read this passage, as you begin this passage, it seems to speak a lot about, it seems to speak about money. But as you really start to think about this passage, you find that it says far more about death than it does about money. But he connects the two together to help us to understand some things about money. And the sons of Korah, as they write this, are are highlighting a specific way of thinking about our possessions. And it's a specific way of thinking that they call foolish, or as I pointed out, stupid. Stupid. Before we look at this philosophy of life here, though, I want to remind you, first of all, it's it's important for us to go all the way back to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and, and remember that the Psalms continually present to us two ways of living. That's the point of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, is to show you two ways of living that then is going to unfold in the rest of the Psalms. If you remember in Psalm 1, we talked about the blessed man. He doesn't do these things. He does these things. Because he does this thing, which is to meditate in God's word day and night, he is like the tree planted by the rivers of water and it's just this picture of flourishing in the blessed man's life. The blessed man has chosen to follow God's path and to pursue God's path and so he flourishes. He may not flourish in his business. He may not flourish in his notoriety. He may not flourish in his power over others, but he will flourish spiritually, and he will flourish is the person that God desires him to be. But there's the other person, the fool, and the fool is the person who rejects God's ways. In Psalm 1, he's compared to chaff that's just thrown up in the air, the grain falls down, the chaff blows away. It's useless, it's worthless, it has no value to himself or to anyone else. And in Psalm 2, that fool is is demonstrated in how he lives by his rejection of God and rejection of his ways. God laughs in the heavens at him. As he shakes his fist at God. But the two ways of living one is to follow uh, God and to desire to obey God and to be in God's word and to know God. And the other way is to reject God and to reject his ways. There's another psalm that is famous, the statement from it is famous, because this one who lives in opposition to God ultimately has said in his heart, There is no God. Remember a friend many years ago. He used to was the president of the college. He used to preach a sermon usually once a year because you know the students, freshmen coming in every year, and he wanted the freshmen to hear that. But he had a statement that he would always use in that sermon, where he says, "There's practical atheists and there's functional atheists. The practical practical atheists live like there's no god. The functional or the, um, the 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 Normal atheists, as we think of them, are the ones who say there is no God, but he said there's a lot of Christians who live like practical atheists. They avow that there is a God, but the way they live declares that that he's not present, he doesn't see, he's not there. But the fool, as he's classified in the Psalms and in the Proverbs, says in his heart, there is no God and lives that way. So we have these two ways of living, knowing God and pursuing God, and his ways or denying God and pursuing our own ways and being in opposition to him. And so here in Psalm 49 we're being presented with a specific way of thinking a philosophy of life that is linked to the fool and that is godless. The way this person lives that is rejected by the writer of Psalm 49 or the writers wants you to see the godless thinking that exists in this person, and therefore, he wants us to see how this godless person, this fool, trusts in his wealth and boasts in the abundance of his riches. His identity, this fool, his identity is wrapped up in what he has, and from it he derives a sense of importance. And it's a foolish way of living. It is a godless way of living. His thinking is, I am rich, and therefore I am powerful, and I am invincible. And this sense of power with this fool, with this godless person, this sense of power and invincibility is reinforced in his mind by his ability to put his name on whatever he desires. Rich people make donations to get their names put on things. You ever notice that? And it makes them feel important. It makes them feel valuable. It it authenticates to themselves that they are everything that they think they are because they have the money. I've as, you, as you've heard me say probably too many times and you're tired of it, but I've been in college circles. Money makes colleges run. And sadly, money makes Christian colleges run. And sadly, having been behind the scenes and watched and interacted with other colleges and administrators, you begin to see how much money drives the decisions that are made at those colleges is one of the things that just soured me on the college environment at a Christian college. Students weren't first, money was first. And what I've seen over the years is somebody makes this multi-million dollar donation and and somebody else who receives that donation puts their name on the gymnasium or on the stadium or on the library or on whatever building. And that's all wonderful and good until they die. And after they die, somebody else comes along with money and says, we'll give you these millions of dollars if you put our name on there now. And the person who's in charge says, good deal. The other one's dead. We'll put their name up there. But it gives them this sense by, putting their, by paying the money and putting their name on there, it gives them the sense that they will live on past the grave. In a sense, they have become invincible because they put their name on something important. Now, I will say this. There are times that we honor people by putting their names on things. They didn't donate anything. They didn't ask for their name to be put on something, and we put their name on something. That's a totally different thing because that person's motives are not, I'm going to do this so I won't be forgotten. It's the rest of us saying, this person We don't want them to be forgotten. It's a totally different motivation and a totally different scenario. But this Psalm 49 could be talking about modern-day American culture, buying land and putting my name on it, buying buildings and putting my name on it. At the top of the building, I build a big skyscraper. I put my name on it. That happens all the time. And it's a foolish way of thinking that in a sense I can beat death by living on through my name, being known. The the fool also believes, we're told here in Psalm 49, that having these buildings and streets and lands that bear their name, he then becomes surrounded by people who see him as important and want to associate with that importance. So they have lots of people who want to come to their parties, who want to be seen with them, that want a picture of them, of themselves with that important person. I've been in many houses, and if this is your thing, maybe I'm being judgmental. But we get really excited to put a picture on our on our refrigerator because we donated an X number of dollars to a political candidate and they took their picture with us or they just sent us a signed picture and we put that up there so that everybody who comes into our house sees or that when we walk into our kitchen we see ourselves on the refrigerator and feel important that we're somehow connected to this important person. But the fool attracts these people to himself and then those people become his advisors. And the only qualification that they have to have to be an advisor is, well, a couple of qualifications. It's nice if they have money, too. And they have those connections, what we call networking. We, have, we use people in our network for our connections so that we can have a, a further grasp, and networking is not wrong, it's just our motivation, and we have to think about that. But these people begin to surround him who reinforce that sense of power and importance, who are also godless and foolish, and begin to give advice that's godless and foolish. And the accolades of these fan groupies bolster the fool's confidence in himself and his wealth. But for that person who lives with a godless perspective, who thinks that money is power, and believes that he has authority simply because he possesses, and who lives without any view of God in relation to what he has and what he's gained, there's something always lurking on the fringes of his consciousness. Death. It's always out there. It's like a bloodhound tracking him down. It's got the scent and the howl's happening, and, and he goes and he goes and he goes and tries to block out the reality of that impending death. If you want to read some interesting biographies, read biographies about the Rockefellers and their, their group of uh, peers how they spent their money, but read about what it did to their families and read about what it did to their children and read about the legacy of their descendants. They put their names on everything. Those people who were called robber barons from the Gilded Age, but they became slaves to their money. They became very fearful of death. They knew it was coming. They did everything they could to avoid it, and yet they died, and what they passed on to their children was tainted money and poor ways of living, and the families collapse. The rich man is not exempt or safe because of his wealth or his denials. And twice the writer of Psalm 49 reminds us that no matter how glorious a human may be, everyone dies like a dog like the beasts. Twice he says that. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, or with a God perspective, is like the beasts that perish. He may be rich. He may be powerful. He may be influential. He may see himself as moving the gears of the world, and yet he will die like an animal. Death cannot be bought off and there is no price anyone can pay to avoid it. I chuckle at some of the current wealthy people who want their bodies or their heads frozen so that someday when we discover how to resurrect through cryogenetics or cryofreezing, they will be able to live again. And I'm just like, a head? You know, are you going to be attached to a different body? Or what? how's that going to work? And you're going to walk around with this nasty scar for the rest of your life and celebrate that you're alive? They think that because of their money they can cheat death. But the psalmist says, no one can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. We would like I, I would like to hear echoes of the ransom of Jesus in there, and I think that possibly we could, and there there is some there is some connection there, but the reality is what he's simply saying here is you can't cheat death by paying it off. And he tells us then that this lifeless, powerless, and now poor man, do you realize that if, if Musk died today or Jeff Bezos died today, he not only would be lifeless and powerless, but he would be poor. No one dies and goes on as a rich man. Everyone has the same bank account in the grave. You have nothing when you die. Nothing goes with you. You can be worth $250 billion, but the moment you die, you're not worth anything. You're dead. And now that money legally belongs to someone else and not to you. And he says that this body that is lifeless and powerless and poor is moved from his spectacular home to his new dwelling place, his new home. His new home is a coffin. And it doesn't matter how big your coffin is, they they only get so big. And by the way, may I encourage you as a pastor who has walked through a lot of funerals with people, not to get sucked up in how much you should spend on yours or somebody else's casket, or yours, or somebody else's burial vault. It's going to be covered with dirt. It's just the way it is. I remember sitting with the family uh, when we were at fellowship, and, the, and the, this particular funeral home director I wasn't real fond of. Most of them I like, but this guy I wasn't real fond of because he was worse than some used car salesmen I've known trying to make a sale, and he was telling them how this burial vault could survive an earthquake and would never leak. And so no water would ever get into the burial vault or the coffin, and and they wouldn't get cold and they wouldn't get wet. And, and these poor people who are so emotionally, you know, uh, t- uh, torn up because they'd lost this dear one, are sitting there going, the wife in particular, she was just kind of going, yeah, yeah. And I, I said, can I say something here just a second? And he kind of looked at me, the funeral home guy looked at me, and family looked at me. I said, I want you to understand something. I, I, I want to say this as kindly as I can, but he'll never feel a drop of water hitting his body again in that grave. And, and he doesn't care if it's earthquake-proof just doesn't care. The burial vault is something required by cemeteries so that their grass stays flat. That's the only purpose of a burial vault. If you don't have one, the ground sinks in and they get these things where your coffin is. So the burial vault is a a cooperation between the funeral home director who makes more money and the cemetery people who have an easier time mowing and it looks prettier. That's the only purpose of it. But sometimes we buy these ornate caskets. It's just going to go in the ground. That guy in particular wanted to be buried like, like Isaac you know in a pine box. That's all he wanted. When you die, you're poor. And your new home is a box. It's just wide enough when you'd be in. And unlike the Egyptians who put all kinds of things into these massive tombs, and not unlike, but even if you could put all these treasures in these massive tombs for the person to enjoy in the afterlife, either A, they don't know God, and they're gonna be in flame forever, or B, they do know God, and what he has waiting for them makes what you put in that Tomb look like cheap trinkets. Everyone dies, and the playing field levels when we're dead. No matter how glorious the stone which marks your grave, the elements slowly erase its markings, and your body returns to dust. You don't even want to know what your body does in there. I have a brother-in-law who used to sell coffins, and he told me how they do it, what the the body does in there, and how they design it, and I was just like, that's gross. It's nasty what happens to us. As the generations pass, your name becomes less and less well-known. For some of us, it won't take a generation. It will be just a few people who remember us and think about us and everybody else has moved on. Other wealthy people will come along and the names of the buildings and the streets and the lands will be changed. We're told that he dies, he carries nothing away, his glory does not go down with him. And yet, as I think about all of that, I do think this. If this were the end of the story, if that was it, if when we die it was all over, being rich would be a pretty good deal. If this is all there is, honestly, I'd rather be rich than poor. Wouldn't you? But the fool has forgotten that there is something beyond the grave. And what he has forgotten is of greatest importance, and that is what awaits everyone beyond the grave. We were talking about the Sadducees this morning and their idea of the resurrection and uh, the issue of life after death and how all that comes together. We can come to Psalm 49 and and we could admittedly make the statement, we should make the statement, that what happened to the spirit of man after death was, was somewhat murky in Psalm at the time of Psalm 49. And yet there are hints here in Psalm 49 of life after the grave. Notice in verse 15, where the writer says, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. God will ransom my soul. I can't buy what comes after death. I can't buy cheating death. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Hear that word receive and just kind of tuck it away in your mind for a moment because later I want to point out to you what that says, what that word receive means. It's a fascinating word where it's used. Asaph, as we go on in the Psalms, Asaph in Psalm 73 says this, that you will guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph, who seems to have been around during the time of the sons of Korah, and they, they both were writing things, was even more clear that afterward, after I die, you will receive me to glory. And God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Forever goes beyond the grave. Asaph believed there was something beyond the grave. And we could debate and we could argue over ancient Jewish understanding of life after death, but for today, I would say between Psalm 69 and 49 and Psalm 73, between these two Psalms, there's a, there is a level of clarity that both of these writers believed that there was something after the grave. There was some kind of existence after the grave. As I thought about that, there was a passage in Luke 16 that came to my mind where Jesus speaks, and you're probably familiar with this story, but Jesus speaks of a rich man and a poor man. The rich man was dressed in his fine clothes. He had pomp. He had wealth. He had importance. He had standing in the community. And there was this man named Lazarus who was a poor man. The poor man was was laying there every day. When the rich man would come by, he had sores on his body. He was begging for food. And this rich man seems to embody the fool of Psalm 49. He had everything he could want. But when he dies... When this rich man dies, and by the way, and this has been said many times over the years, Jesus does not, it does not say that Jesus spoke a parable. There's, no thing, there's nothing that indicates that this was a parable, but rather Jesus was telling a true story about a rich man and a poor man. And the poor man's name was Lazarus. And this rich man dies one day. And Jesus says that after his body he is buried, he wakes to find himself in Hades, continually tormented by fire. This, this rich man who had everything, he had all the finest clothes, he ate all the finest food, he was known, he had power, wakes, opens his eyes in flame, and he's thirsty, and he's feeling the heat of the flames around his body, and he calls out, he sees Abraham, and he calls out to Abraham, and asks for just a touch of water on his tongue. Send Lazarus. (laughs) You know what that implies? You know what that implies about Lazarus and this rich man? He still thinks that he has power, and that Lazarus is his servant, and that Lazarus should come over from the beauty and the comfort and the pleasure of being with, with the redeemed of all time, and should come with water to serve the rich man. Send Lazarus over to touch my tongue. And I can hear Abraham just kind of chuckling and said, dude, this is a modern translation, dude, that's really messed up. you had it all. You had everything. You had the power, you had the wealth, you had the notoriety, you had, you had it all. Except where your trust was. Your trust was in what you had. That was your identity. Lazarus had nothing. And he has no obligation. To be your servant today and what he's saying to the rich man not only are you not getting out of this and not only you're not getting water but you're nobody on the other hand Lazarus is over here Lazarus is somebody you're nothing I've got to wonder what it's like for somebody who has had everything and could command everyone to suddenly be in a place. I mean, just set the fire aside. To suddenly be in a place where you're nobody and you're no better than anybody else. It's got to be a hit if that's your identity. And then let's just bring the fire back into it. And the torment. And the gulf that separates you from the presence and enjoyment of God. What Jesus is teaching is that hell and the lake of fire are the eternal home of everyone who trusts in their riches. And please understand that there is a difference between having riches and enjoying riches and trusting in riches. It is not a sin to be wealthy. Never has been. It is not wrong to be wealthy, and we should not envy people who are wealthy. And when we do envy people who are wealthy, we're admitting where we think we're going to find our satisfaction and our trust. If you are of a mindset of that we should take from wealthy people to give to ourselves, I'm not even to talk about economics this morning and whether or not that's a viable system. I don't care at this moment. What I want to tell you is that that's called envy and greed and it reveals what's going on in your heart and where you think you'll find satisfaction and where you you think you'll find security. And I, I want to interject this here. We as Christians are getting all wrapped up in the wrong arguments because we're not talking from a biblical viewpoint. And I'll say it again. We're not here to save a political system of one degree or another. We are here to spread the gospel and promote a worldview that is biblical. You say, yeah, and if we have a biblical worldview, then we're going to have this system of economics. No! If we spread the gospel in a biblical worldview, we're going to have more people who praise God and are obedient to him, regardless of OF THE ECONOMIC SITUATION THAT THEY LIVE IN. YOU UNDERSTAND THE DIFFERENCE BETWEEN THOSE TWO? THE ROOT OF THE PROBLEM IS NOT THAT SOMEBODY NEEDS AN EDUCATION IN HOW ECONOMIES WORK AND WHAT'S THE BEST SYSTEM. AT THE HEART OF THE ISSUE WITH with THE KINGDOM OF JESUS IS DO WE HAVE HEARTS THAT ARE ENVIOUS AND GREEDY? And if so, something needs to change. Because if that never changes, and we do not yield to God, and we live as fools, the outcome is an eternity in hell. Not whether or not I lived under a political system or economic system that I thought benefited me. We are to be driven by one of those two, not both. Here, the fool who said in his heart, There is no God, and lived out his life confirming this belief, who rejected God and his ways, has been rejected by God. There's another passage that I thought of where the Apostle Paul speaks of the death of those who trust in God. And he says, For we know that when this earthly tent, this body we live in, is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies, and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. We will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and we sigh, but it is not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. I have to say to Paul there, sometimes I disagree with you on that, but I know who's right, and it's Paul. Sometimes I just want to be done with this body, but the reality is that the problem isn't with the body. The problem is with the curse that's affected this body. He says, rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared us for this, and as a guarantee, he has given us the Holy Spirit. So we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. We live by believing and not by seeing And we are fully confident and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies for then we will be at home with the Lord. So whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. Paul Paul speaks here of an earthly life and a heavenly life. And they're both in view. And he says we're living in these earthly bodies and we feel the pain of these earthly bodies and we groan and we sigh. And the reality is someday we're going to have a heavenly body, and that heavenly body is the earthly body that's resurrected without the curse, without sin, without pain, without groaning, and without sighing. And I I love this passage, plus another one I want to share with you in a moment, but I love this passage because I believe that it stands in opposition and contrast to Luke 16. In Luke 16, the foolish man who had everything in this life, went to the grave and went to Hades and suffers in torment because of where, what he trusted in. But though, for those who trust in Christ, no matter your station or your occupation or how much money you have, whatever, When you die, your body goes into the grave and it rots. And for a period of time, you're going to live only as a spirit before Christ. But there will come a day when all the bodies are resurrected and the bodies of the believers will be changed. They will be transformed. I don't know if my crooked leg is going to be straight someday. I don't really care. All I care about is it's not going to bother me anymore. It won't ache when the rain comes in. And I'm thinking that probably the stent in my heart and the, the rods in my back are going to be gone. And if they're not, I don't care because it won't hurt anymore. I don't have to bend over by throwing my leg out to get down there anymore. I can just bend over without the pain in my back. When I sit down, I won't feel my tailbone do that little weird move and the bones in there hurt. That'll be gone. I won't have the pain down my leg. I won't have the pain in my neck. I won't have the muscle spasms in my back anymore. I won't have the arthritis in my joints anymore. I won't feel the fatigue anymore. It'll be gone in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. It's the contrast between the one who trusts in his money and the one who trusts in Christ. And Paul speaks to this in such a familiar passage in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the one that we use over and over at funerals. He says to us that life after death for those who trust in God is not just a spiritual existence, but it is a physical resurrection of our bodies. And he links this resurrection to one's belief and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, those who trust in God are those who believe in and trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And their hope and their identity is not in their wealth. Their hope and their identity is not in their perceived goodness. Paul is speaking of people who trust in God and find their hope and identity in the good and gracious work of Jesus. I may not be as wealthy as other people. I may not have the power or the notoriety of other people. And I will be honest to tell you that I struggle with that. I have an attraction to wealth. I have an attraction to being known. I have an attraction to bigger platforms. You may not struggle with that, I do. But I also know And I need to find my hope and identity in the good and gracious work of Jesus. And so in closing this morning, I want us to hear again the words of 1 Corinthians 15. They're familiar words, but they are precious words, and I don't think we could ever hear them too much. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we will not all stay dead. He says sleep, but he says, it means stay dead. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And you aren't even going to be a Marvel superhero and you're going to be immortal. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor is not in vain. You may not be wealthy by the world's standards. You may not be powerful You may not be well-known. You may just be somebody who does your job day after day and feels forgotten by most people, but the reality is that God never forgets. And your labor is not in vain. And when you die, you're going to open your eyes into the presence of Jesus and your Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit. I have said many times that one of the things I love about being a pastor is that I sometimes have the opportunity to usher believers into the presence of God, to talk to them and encourage them in those last moments of their life, and to know that when their hearts stopped, their eyes opened, And they saw the face of their Savior. That's what waits for those who trust in God instead of money. Where do you find your security this morning? In your money or in what waits? I told you about that word in Psalm 49 where the writer says, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. That word is used numerous times in the Old Testament, but there's two places where this word's exact form is used. There was this guy named Enoch who was was not because God took him. It's the same word. Elisha was taken up in a chariot of fire. Same word. When this writer says that God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, he will take me, the idea is pretty clear with him in Psalm 49 that when he closed his eyes in death, he would not go down to the pit, but God would take his soul to himself. That's confidence. I love that statement about Enoch. Enoch walked with God, and God took him. I love it's one of my favorite statements in Scripture. But it doesn't just apply to Enoch. For everyone who trusts in God, they are not someday, because God takes them to be with Himself hope this morning that you're trusting in God and the gift of eternal life through Jesus. I hope that you're not trusting in, your, in your, what you have or what you do. That is a battle in the American culture. I don't know how else to say it. We all really struggle with it to some degree or another. We need to be aware of it. And we need to come back to our only hope is Jesus Don't believe the lie that your money offers you security or hope and don't give up because the wealthy seem to flourish. The wicked wealthy. Anchor your desires in things above, not on things of this earth and follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful for Jesus. And as I... Think of these people. I know that so many of them would say the same thing. I'm thankful that he came to this earth and suffered the pains of life on this earth and understood how frail we are because he lived in a body like us. I'm thankful that he is a sympathetic high priest who understands. But Father, more than that, I'm thankful that Jesus was obedient to death on the cross. And just like with the thief who hung next to him who said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Father, for all who trust in your son, The words, today you will be with me in paradise, apply to our death day as well. Father, help us not to forget this. It's so easy for us, Father, to walk out of here and and life's pressures come back on us and we slide back into those identity-seeking paths. cravings of what we see, the cravings for what we feel, the boasting in who we are or what we have, or setting ourselves in opposition to people who have what we want or wish we were. Father, help us to go out from here throughout this day and as we go forward remembering that we are not the watch that we wear, and we are not the car that we drive. We are not the clothes that we wear, or the way our hair looks, or the kind of makeup or lack thereof. That is not who we are. Help us to remember that we are either yours or a child of the devil. And help us to stay faithful by reminding us of what waits for us, for those who love you and trust Jesus. I ask all of this in your son's name. Amen.